Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to episode 681 with my guest Topaz Adizes. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin, and you have you have not come here by accident. You are you're here, but maybe you're curious about mental health. Maybe uh, maybe you want to be a voyeur for the freak show. Uh, maybe somebody told you to come here. Maybe you like the name of the podcast as you were browsing around for uh, something to help you with your crazy. Either way. Welcome. This is a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around our heads. Hey, I want to give another shout out to, she was a former guest. Her name is uh, Christine Lane, and uh, she talked about the intersection of psychology and money, and she is a a financial coach, and um, as a financial counselor, uh, she can help you get control of your finances and ditch some of the, the, the shame that people have around money. And um, her episode was number 651. And I just think uh, you would get a lot. We did an ad for, for her uh, a while back um, because a bunch of people came to her after we had her on as a uh, guest. And uh, she thought, well, you know, this is really clicking with your audience. Maybe I should take an ad out. And so uh, I just want to see that uh, she gets get some people signing up. So uh, her website, and I'll put this in the show notes, is mindovermoneysite.com. That's mindovermoneysite, and site is S-I-T-E, dot com. But uh, check her out. Bright lady, good service. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. Oh, and by the way, we are, we've kind of plateaued, actually just gone a little bit backwards with Patreon subscribers. And, uh, oh, I hate to, I hate to keep asking for, for money, but we could really use some financial support. There you, there you have it. It's uh, patreon.com slash mental pod. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled up by Mimi, and she write, writes, you said there were surveys you weren't reading because they were too dark. You then proceeded to read some of the darkest shit I've heard in a long time. Are you okay? I feel like reading anything worse than all the stuff you went over and reading that regularly at that would weigh on anyone's mind and be incredibly distressing. I love your work and what you do, but I really worry you're damaging yourself with how heavy all this is. 
I worry this will sound condescending and insincere, but I really hope you're doing okay because hearing things this dark this often would really mess me up and make me lose hope in the world. Uh, first of all, that does not sound condescending and insincere. It sounds really uh, heartfelt and and kind, and, and I really appreciate that. Um, one of the things that I had to start doing about, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago is to limit the number of shame and secrets surveys that I read because those are the heaviest. And I did find it to, um, it was starting to affect my, my mental health. Um, and I also have to be careful with how much news I let in, uh, because honestly, I find that as depressing and saddening and anxiety inducing as some of the surveys that I read. But um, I am doing okay. I am doing okay in terms of like taking in all of all of that stuff. But I appreciate you asking. You know, I was um, I was in uh, my wood shop the other day. And, you know, as many of you know, that are regular listeners, I am um, making furniture. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to start selling that soon. And and I just felt like the luckiest guy in the world that um, that I have a passion that I currently feel passionate about because sometimes the desire to woodwork comes and goes. But um, currently, it's just uh, it's a really great feeling. And yeah, there's a lot of financial insecurity and and unknown. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's uh, I'm still able to enjoy myself and. And the shame and secret surveys, by the way, um, I had to skip forward about, I fell about four years behind in reading those surveys because over 10,000 people have taken that survey. And uh, I started thinking, boy, there are people who filled one out in the last year who are never going to hear their survey if they don't continue listening for the next five years, there's also a chance that they filled it out and it won't be read. But um, so I skipped forward. So there's a gap of four years of surveys that I have not read. And I guess I feel bad about that. So maybe it is affecting me, but not in the way that you think. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for that, Mimi. And I am putting some surveys aside for the next uh, darkest surveys ever episode. In fact, I was going to read one today and I was like, no, I think that one's going to go for the next uh, episode of that. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey and this is filled out by BPD Batty. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? And she writes that I don't deserve to be happy, that my suffering and failures are because I've done enough bad things in my life that I don't deserve anything good to happen to me that I am not making a change in the world or helping anybody, so I don't deserve to be here. You know, I'm thank you for that, and I'm kind of surprised that we don't get this one more because I think for many of us, especially us Catholics or people who were raised Catholic, as I was, there's that just ingrained feeling of I've done something that I am a bad person. I can't point to anything, maybe specifically even. It's just God is waiting to 
<laughs> hit me with the bolt of lightning and then uh, drop me in the cauldron for uh, eternity. But uh, thanks for sharing that. This is from the Body Shame Survey. And this is filled out by, we had a little drop out there. This is filled out by Bryn. And uh, what do you like or dislike about your body? And she writes, I like plenty about the way I look. I contracted genital herpes in the parentheses while using protection and hate that I feel unfree now. The guy knew he had herpes and didn't tell me. I tried to sue him, but he was too broke. I'm scared to touch myself directly to masturbate, so I do it over my clothes. In the shower, I wear nitro gloves because I'm scared of passing it on to another part of my body. I wash my hands four times after using the bathroom. I don't have sex anymore because I don't want anyone to know I have herpes, don't want to be rejected because of it, and don't want to cause the despair don't want to cause the despair it's caused me and another person. You can, and Candace and caps transmit it when you don't have symptoms. At first, I had intensive symptoms for months and panicked, so I took a medication for it. The medication triggered alopecia, so I have progressive hair loss in addition to herpes for the rest of my life. I went from feeling beautiful and fuckable to diseased and gradually balding because I fucked one asshole. I have a high libido and I'm not sure how I'm going to survive the touch starvation. I'm also autistic, in parentheses, late diagnosed recently, and don't like casual touch. And I'm realizing with the diagnosis how many men I slept with when I didn't want to. Thank you for that, Brandon. I'm so sorry that this is what you're, this is what you are dealing with. And, um, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, try to dispense advice or, you know, attitude adjustment or any of that shit. Just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, uh, that you're dealing with this. And yeah, fuck that guy. What a dick. And um, I do know people, uh, I'd say half a dozen or more friends who live with uh, genital herpes and um, I know that there are uh, partners out there um, who are together, who both have it, who had it before they met. I, and I don't even know why I'm mentioning that. Uh, if that sounds too, you know, let's bring an array of sunshine in here. Um, I don't know. Sending you some love, Bryn. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves A. And they write, I love going on a mile-long walk walk on a hot California morning and getting to the store, then cracking open and sniffing the smell that comes out of a La Colombe vanilla nitro draft latte can. That's a long-ass name. That is a long-ass name. And I've heard other people rave about that uh, I'm not a fan of the uh, the coffee out of the can, though. I like uh, I, I love cold brew, especially Stumptown, and I love it out of the bottle. Oh, sweet, sweet Stumptown! I'd love to get them as a uh, advertiser. She also loves, or I don't know, maybe A is male. I I've, I've assigned a gender to A, and there's no going back. 
Saving people from getting attacked by other enemy players in World of Warcraft, Wrath of the Lich King, and having them be thankful to you. That's a good one. We also have a great loves towards the end of this survey or end of the podcast uh, about games. I love a good gaming love. I got an email from uh, a listener, uh, Kelly, and she wanted to share these uh, poems with me. And I really liked them. They're short. Don't worry, those of you that don't like poetry, you're not trapped. Um, this first one is called Why We Must Struggle by Kay Ryan. And uh, the poem goes, if we have not struggled as hard as we can at our strongest, how will we sense the shape of our losses or know what sustains us longest or name what change costs us? Saying how strange it is that one sector of the self can step in for another in trouble, how loss activates a latent double how we can feed as upon nectar, upon need, question mark. Again, that's by Kay Ryan. That's called Why We Must Struggle. And then this other one is called After the Fire by Ada Limon, L-I-M-O-N. Um, you ever think you could cry so hard that there'd be nothing left in you? Like how the wind shakes a tree in a storm until every part of it is run through with wind? I live in the low parts now, most days a little hazy with fever and waiting for the water to stop shivering out of the body. Funny thing about grief, its hold is so bright and determined like a flame, like something almost worth living for. Thank you for that. And that one again is by, um, who did I say that was by? Ada Lyman. It's called After the Fire. Thank you for those, Kelly. And I got to tell you, not a big poetry person. Every once in a while, I'll hear one. I'm like, oh, yeah, that really. But most of them, I'm like, oh, I can't wait till this poem is over. This is from the fear survey filled out by Cal. And he writes, I fear that I'll never fit in with any group, especially along gender lines. I'm a cisgender, straight male, but I've always had a hard time relating to other men, partly because I don't do a lot of traditionally male things. I don't like sports. I'm not handy. I can't fix or maintain my car. I find some traditional male attitudes to be toxic and off-putting. I feel like a lot of my characteristics and experiences veer towards things traditionally associated with or experienced by women. I am very emotionally sensitive. I've been sexually and emotionally abused, and in parentheses, by aggressive women taking advantage of my non-confrontational nature. I do not feel comfortable taking initiative when it comes to dating. Most of my close friends have been women, but I don't feel like I totally fit in with them either since I am not one myself, and I don't really feel like I'm non-binary or gender fluid, so I don't see myself really fitting into those categories either. I do consider myself a man, but I just fear that who I am means I'll never really find a place where I belong or can be fully understood. Thank you for that, Cal. Um, you're a very articulate dude, and... Um, yeah, feeling like an outsider uh, fucking blows. And I can't relate to the one along gender lines, but I definitely know what it is, what it feels like to be an outsider in other, in other areas. And it's, uh, 
it blows. Yeah. Is that a t-shirt? Just simply, it blows? And the people come up, up to you, what blows? And there you go, you blow. And then you just watch their face drop. That's how I spend my Sundays. This is uh, an email that I got from Brian, and he writes, Mental Pod, are you still in business? Uh, oh, Brian. I am currently in Chapter 10, which is um, where you have a conversation with yourself about whether or not you should go Chapter 11. And now I'm chapter 11. I've decided that everything's got to go, Brian. I don't, I don't. I have got racks and racks of slightly soiled wedding gowns. And I thought they were going to sell. But it turns out what people see in champagne stains, they think that that's urine. And I've not sold a single dress and I'm going to have to close shutter the doors of the clumsy bride by probably the end of the month and I don't know what I'm going to do sure some of the dresses I knew were not going to sell the ones where the hem smells like raw garbage I, I knew those were going to be tough but I figured a lot of people would be willing to have their guests upwind to save a couple dollars. No. Turns out raw garbage is a deal breaker. I'm learning all these things, Brian. So yes, right now I'm in business, but I soon won't be, and thank you very much. God damn it. We're going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And I can recommend uh, Cerebral. I have... Uh, been doing sessions with uh, my therapist, Megan, and she's intelligent, compassionate. Um, this last week, I had therapy with her, and she helped me prioritize uh, the things that I've been stressing out about. She helped me clarify things from a state of vagueness to what are some actionable things that, uh, that I can do, and, uh, and I felt a sense of relief. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you guys 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code mental. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code mental to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And finally, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by Scooter. And about her autism, she writes, Autism is the body feeling so much it detects nothing. And about her ADD, ADD is Alzheimer's for beginners. That feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. All my alters have different handwriting, different affects. I'm somebody in prison. My mom taught me about rape. And I'm nobody on the streets. Before she taught me about love. Nobody will ever love me enough. There's two lies. A kind pimp. Yes. The secret shameful life at home. Happiness isn't the goal. That you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. The goal is meaning. It's hard to go into the dark places. I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it. Recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors. What you resist gets louder. And run toward them. She said, you first. And I said, I might be gay. I was with a girl. And I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last session. <laughs> I'm here with Topaz Adizes and... Um, we got a lot to talk about, man. You, uh, you are the creator of um, a, a, would you call it a connection empire? <laughs> <laughs> no empire. Uh, uh, yeah, we, I, I'm really interested in, in the space between people. I'm really, especially, I'm really interested in the human experience. Yeah. You know, as, as souls, we're in these bodies and like what happens in that period of time where we're alive, if you will. We were um, be- before we started recording. We were watching one of your uh, YouTube videos, and it's the 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 name of um, kind of the the brand is uh, the Skin Deep, mm-hmm. and the series we were watching is called The And, and the video we watched is between a man who w- was in prison and his daughter who met him uh, recently for, Mm -hmm. for the first time. And it's first of all, so beautifully shot, Mm. but such an intimate and beautiful conversation. And Mm. you have 1200 videos. Yeah. We've recorded over the last 10 years, over 1200 conversations. Um, And we continue to post and record and, and we'll get to the, the book that, will be out by the time this episode airs. But I want to talk about, speaking of the and, um, you have this game mm-hmm. yeah, that's called the and. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the editions called the Friends Edition. And these yeah. are cards that people, when they get together, can ask each other. Yeah. Uh, and they're good questions because they illuminate. Give us a couple. Well, why don't you mix it up and just choose one? Okay. I mean... Can you we know. can we ask each other? Yeah, even though I, we're I, not 
uh, what, you, fr- we just 10 met. friends. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I fucked up. He, I, I had Topaz down for a month from now. And he pulls into the driveway, and I'm like, who's this asshole parking in my driveway? So I, he walks up. I didn't know who he was. I didn't. I coun't even go, hey, Mark, yeah, but how's it going? For considering you had no idea who this guy's pulling. You're super nice. Just anybody knows you could pull up, and Paul would be super nice to you. <laughs> right pulling in. Well, I kind of had a feeling it was you a did? guess that I fucked up on the date with. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, the, the episode that is up this week, we're recording this in December. I pronounce Leah Rudick's name Rudnick. It's just, I always say to my girlfriend, you do not hang, want to hang around for the, the, the golden years. Um, Are you looking at which one? I'm looking. Well, this one, because we don't know each other. What yeah. do you think makes me happy? Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. what's interesting about these questions that I think a lot of people overlook because there's a lot of, and we've been selling these questions. The way it started is we started the conversations at the end. And what's the end? It's about the space between because the relationship is, it's not you or I, us or them. It's you and I, us and them that connects us. So it's the end. It's the space between. And so then we did these videos where we film with three cameras that you're discussing and describing and people ask each other questions and, and it's just these two pe- the two people talking to each other are the only ones on camera and you based on a questionnaire they filled out you come up with the questions yeah, for I mean, them to ask each other exactly in a certain sequence and then we had so many people watching that and saying this is great i want to do this at home so then we made these different editions of the car game so we took basically each edition is 199 questions so, you know, the is question- there one that would be appropriate that you could ask me or I could ask you, even though we don't know each other? Do you have a strangers edition? Oh, yeah, we have a strangers edition. Do you have a strangers you know, is- that just pulled up in a driveway <laughs> unannounced? Edition? Well, this is, well, you know, this is one we could say for the end. What are you going to take away from this conversation? Okay, I like that. Put yeah. that put that one down. Yeah. I mean, I love- Do I need my lawyer for that one? Probably not. We'll see. Let's see how we yes. go. <laughs> was, you know. Yeah, I think there's – what I think is interesting about the questions, in my opinion, is because there's a lot of questions out there, but our questions are very much about the connective space. So it's, you know, even this one, you know, what do you think I've yet to learn from our relationship? Or, you know, what do you think I misunderstand about our connection? Or what what is the biggest challenge in our relationship right now and what can we do about it? But it's always about us. It's not – the questions aren't what do you think about love or what do you think about friendship? It's what do you think we misunderstand about friendship? Right. Or what do you think I think about friendship? So it's, about, it's it's not about your opinion because if I ask you the question and your partner, your girlfriend asks you the question and the bartender asks you the question, you'll answer three different three. Well, if it's if it's you know what do you think about friendship, you could answer those three questions the same way with the three people asking you the same way. But if I ask you and your wife goes, what do you think I think about friendship? You're going to answer differently. Right. So it acknowledges this, the connection. Right. And I think that's what's often missing is that we're not exploring the spaces we have with the people in our life. But you need to create the space and the questions to do that. And that, that's what the game is. You know, if, you're, if your girlfriend comes home and I goes, Paul, why do you love me? You're not going to be wondering why you love her. You're going to be wondering what the fuck happened that she's asking me this question while I'm washing the dishes. You know what I mean? You're, so if you have a game and the question comes out, oh, now there's a space to answer and receive. Yeah. And people are prepared because they, they, know, they know. They know what might be coming up, why they're here. Uh, well, one of the reasons that I wanted to to have you on when I <clears throat> spoke to your PR person, they talked about the book, uh, 12 Questions for Love, and 
you know, as you and I were saying before we started recording the kind of the wheelhouse of this podcast, and it sounds like, you know, your um, series as well, uh, is how how do we foster intimacy? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we even phrase the questions? Mm-hmm. What are the mm-hmm. questions? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, one of the things I often say is there's almost nothing that we can't talk about if we can find the right words in the right tone of voice at the right time. In the right space. In the right space. And easier said than done, especially mm-hmm. if we were raised in a household where it wasn't modeled right. for us. Well, the first thing I want to add is I think we should remove the word right because there is no yes. right way. It's just in a constructive space, well-constructed questions with, 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 a, you know, uh, with good intent, not good intent, but not a value judgment on the action. But if we do that, there's a way, and, and I oftentimes even talk to my family, where are we taught to have these intimate conversations? We don't get taught that in school. You don't get taught that if, you know, unless you're privy to a really, uh, to a family that does that or a relationship, you, you don't get that. We, a lot of us don't get that. And those people probably aren't listening to us yeah, right now because yeah. they, don't, <laughs> they, don't, they don't feel lost. It took me a long time to, actually in the writing of the, we've been doing this for 10 years. And only in the writing of the book would I really spend time in, okay, why is this working? I mean, I've always thought about that and I've always had thoughts, but actually to distill it down into something, that was the beautiful gift I got from the process of making the book is, why does this work? And how did I fall into this place that me, Topaz, ended up in this place where I got the joy of having this responsibility of like, holy shit, I got this format that creates a space for people to connect and have that cathartic feeling Mm -hmm. of exploring the relationship in a way they haven't done before. Well, I want to know about you. Where were you raised? What was family life like? Your view of yourself, your view of the world, how you fit in it. How has that evolved? (laughs) What led you to start? (laughs) In my prep for this podcast, I've been listening to a bunch of your podcasts. I'm like, oh, here we go. This is this is probably the podcast I would do. (laughs) And I'm like, interesting how I'm a little bit uh, mm, reserved, right? I just noticed that. So, but I'm I'm an open book, so I can edit anything out. No, 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 I'm not like. worried about that. I'm not worried about. It. I just noticed, like, for a person who's so interested in intimate conversations, now going on to a show that does talk about the story of life of your life, which I'm very interested in, because I think there's beautiful gifts in the story of one's life. Also, the story itself is a creation to some degree. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you? The facts are the facts, but the story you give it, you can alter. In my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and so. Yeah, well, where do you want to begin? Where were you born? I was born in uh, Santa Monica, California, mm-hmm. so just over right here. Right up the road? Yeah, I grew, spent the first 18 years of my life here in Santa Monica. I went to Santa Monica High School, public school, and um, and I went off to Berkeley, studied philosophy. You see Berkeley? You're one of those guys. I'm one of those guys. I spent a year at, uh, at Oxford studying philosophy, which was a great experience, and um, I speak I'm not fluent in four languages, but I'm I, I can I can bullshit in four. You languages. can order a beer. Oh, in easily. Four languages. Oh, easily for sure. But I can bullshit in four languages, and um, I, I love traveling and moving. And uh, now I'm a father. I have two children, um, almost four and almost one, and that's that's probably like the biggest thing for me now. But um, and right now you are based out of Mexico. Yeah, I'm in Guadalajara, Mexico, and uh, my wife and I are about to leave in the end of February to move down to Uruguay to give that uh, an experience. 
my girlfriend who is uh, from Ecuador uh-huh. uh, loves Uruguay. Really? And she says it's one of the most progressive countries. Oh, yeah. Not only in Latin America, but in the world. <laughs> Marijuana has been legal since 2013. Gay marriage has been legal since 2013. Um, it's a country of three and a half million. And th- honestly, those two facts... Um, were t- told me that this is a progressive place and that's a place I'd like to raise my kids. One of the, you know, so we're going to give it a shot. But I, I was, you know, I'm from California, born well, and raised. And I spent, I, I, my joke is 18, the first 18 was in California. Then I went to study for a few years. And then I spent 18 years in New York. And the last five I've been in Guadalajara, Mexico, because of all places, that's where I met my wife. And it's actually, it was I went there for one reason to help my father out. He was sick, and then I met my wife, and I stayed. And I never expected to find my wife there. I mean, I was actually avoiding Guadalajara for years because I just hated the name. I was like, "That's a." I lived in Mexico City. I loved it, and then I Guadalajara. I was like, that's a, just a for some. I don't know why a horrible name would stop me from going to a place. I, it's so funny because I think it's such a beautiful name. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I ended up meeting my wife there. So, I've been there the last five years, and it's been it's been great. So what was family life like uh, um, growing up? Uh, particularly yeah. any struggles, whether it was... Uh, so what I find interesting for me is, you know, as I look back at it, I'm 47 now. As I look back at it, you know, there was a pain early on. And that pain, and that pain that, you know was the lack of intimacy. My parents got divorced when I was four. I only have one memory of them being happy together. Um, my mom laughed so hard she she pissed in her pants because my dad made a joke. That's my only memory of them being happy That's together. That's a pretty good memory. Yeah, it's great. And I thought, you know, even then it's like, wow, what's wrong here? She pissed in her pants, laughing like, cool, but she pissed in, you know. Right. And I don't even know if my mom remembers that, but I remember that. And uh, I was three or four. And then, and my memory, you know, I think... That pain of the lack of intimacy and connection between my parents and also me with them, I think led to a hunger to explore intimacy and connection. That then through many years transformed into this gift that is what I've been spending my time on for the last 10 years. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. How? I think it's beautiful. I think that's kind of about the stories of our lives. For many years until I was 37, there's one memory, and I describe it in the book too, but it's, it's this memory of, my mom coming to get me, my brother and I, and basically my dad and her like fighting between putting us in the car and taking us out of the car and as she's taking us away because they hadn't figured out the, um, what was it? The, logistics. The logistics of where we spent time when. It, that hadn't been figured out yet. And um, and for until I was 37, that was a source of pain. And it's something that actually anchored my identity into a sense of victimhood for me. And then it started shifting. And now, 10 years later, for the work, I kind of see it as just an f- interesting story that's actually like the seed of the pain or the symbolic story of the pain that actually now is turned into a gift. And now I see it as like, oh, that's a beautiful little story. And that's actually, and I would treat it differently. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, even be- before I used to treat the word divorce, because that was basically my first memory of parents, seeing my parents fight and divorce and literally mediating my brother's 15 months younger than I. So my experience, my memory is mediating between two warring parents as a four-year-old, literally. Um, 
you remember anything you oh, said yeah. as you were mediating? I'm, I mean, in this story, remember I tell you about my dad came in the room, your mom's about to pick you up, and she's taking you for this holiday. And I don't, I want to be with you on the holiday. What should I do? I said, well, write up a contract. What should I write in the contract? Well, write that if she takes us on this holiday, you get us on the next holiday. And I, my memory is that I basically read, told him what to write, and he wrote it on a piece of paper. And you were how old? Four. Like, you know. How did you even know what the word contract meant? No, make a deal. Maybe oh, I said okay. make a deal. I, I don't remember. You know, and also memories lie, right? Right. Memories... Not that they're malevolent, but they change. And you, but this is my memory. That memory has informed my perspective on you know on my being, my identity, and and. But that I remember like yesterday, and and um, my relationship to that memory has shifted, obviously. But the story, as I remember, it still remains the same. And that's you know I negotiated, and when my mom came to get us, I said, "Mom, just sign the contract." She's like, "I'm not signing any contract. I'm not signing any paper." As she took my brother and her and I and. So that was early on. It was a lot of fighting, and it was a lot of movement. Every Monday and Friday, I'd move between houses. So for, I mean, I was born to be, a, I mean, a gypsy, right? Mm-hmm. And then every six weeks, we'd swap for two weeks. So I'd be with my dad on the weekdays, and my mom on the weekends. So it was a lot of movement. Every Monday and Friday was pack your stuff up, go to the other house. I mean, twice twice a week, you're moving. And what do you remember the feelings that you would have as you would? Pack up or oh, move. I was a. I was trying to be in the media. I was trying to solve why they got divorced. Apparently, I used to have a lot of bad stomach aches, which I don't remember. But then, in my twenties and thirties, when I was dating, and I was as soon as I felt this intimacy growing with someone, I would get a stomach ache, butterflies, and I, I thought not those, like I'm in love, butterflies. No, no, like like anxiety, like falling off of a roller coaster. Anxiety, yeah. you know, like ooh, and like you could see this. Uh, in my case, I was dating women, and, and when I look me in the eyes, and I could see their, um, not, not long, but they liked me. Mm-hmm. And I could see that there was a desire, and they they want to be intimate, and there was a love in their eyes. Boom, stomach ache, you know, roller coaster dropping, and then I thought that I thought that was fear, and so I would break the relationship. I thought that was fear of this is not right versus oh. This is fear, and actually, Topaz, on the flip side of fear, is the path to growth. Like, stay in it. And that took me a long time to realize that. That's why I have this line now, like, the path to growth is lit by your fears. Pursue them wherever they appear. Yep. Fear and, and resentments, are, they're a gold mine to understanding not only yourself, but the, the, the path forward. I think so much of life is the process of elimination, saying, this oh. is not working. This this coping mechanism that helped me survive as a child is no longer serving me as an adult. Yeah. Thank you very much. Moving. Yeah. But it's like a constant peeling back of these, of the layers. Cause now I'm 47. Now there's, there's another layer for me to explore. Now I'm I'm reflected back through my children and, and my new relationship with my wife, new being now we're parents, you know, Mm -hmm. now we're parents of two. Where, how do we allocate our, our energy? So there's constantly this. And where, where am I? The thing question I'm asking now is where am I doing the work in terms of facing those discomforts and fears and where am I um, pretending that they're not there? What are some of the ones you are pretending they're not there? Well, I don't, I don't even know. Like, I don't even know if I'm not, you know, are they in my blind spot? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that so I, you're looking. Oh, I'm trying to always look. 
And that's why whenever I feel discomfort, I'm like, okay, there's something there. Or, you know, I love that. You know, you know, any my wife and I, anytime I feel like, oh, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like, great, you're gonna learn something. You got to go. Mm-hmm. So driving here, he, we're gonna go. With these questions, interesting, Topaz. Why is that? Let's go and find out. It, it our bodies can be so important to helping us find our path if we listen, listen to, to them. And sometimes it might be that reality is being distorted and our body's telling us something, but sometimes our intuition totally. is telling us something. That's what I call in the book deep listening, which is when you're when oftentimes we're in conversation, we're thinking about what we're going to say next. Mm-hmm. But when we drop in and we're looking in people's eyes and we're actually breathing in our body, if you let the intuition speak and you let the body talk, because you realize I don't need to win a point here. I'm not here to get to a conclusion or right. Just let's see where the conversation flows, which is what I've felt in listening to your podcasts. And I call that deep listening. It's like listening to your intuition, your trust and your body and seeing, Oh, where there's tension here. There's tension in the stomach. Like, what's that about? Oh, let me breathe into that. And through the breathing into that tension, what a thought comes up. And then let me articulate that thought and see what, how that resonates in the other person who's also hopefully deep listening and let's just see where the conversation goes. What do you think you were seeking uh, in studying philosophy and what, if anything, did you take from it or have you taken from it that helps you or helps others? So I, I took, I, I studied philosophy because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so what I told myself, and with the help of my father, which is interesting because he's in the business world, but he said, uh, you know, what I told myself was I'm going to learn how to think first and then apply it to something. And philosophy was a great way to learn how to think, if you will, look at an idea as an object and look at it from all the different angles, see an argument, see an idea, a perspective, and analyze it. And I thought that was something that was really helpful by studying philosophy. I don't think I was very good at studying philosophy. Um, the other thing I learned or took away from it <laughs> was that maybe there's no truth and it's just the confidence of someone who sounds like they know the truth and they're just making an argument and they still look really confident and they use really beautiful, eloquent words and strong arguments. But at the end of the day, someone else who's arguing the other side, you know, just as eloquently and just as confidently can sound right too. And, so- and that was the name of the class. What arrogant? What? <laughs> what you just said? <laughs> like it's kind of long, but people understood what <laughs> yeah. they were taking. <laughs> That's what I took away, and I think it was a great practice in just looking at ideas as shapes and objects, which you then can spin around and see different angles on. Are you a meditator? Um, in theory, yes. In reality, no. I have two children. We wake up at six thirty. Uh, it's it's on my list, and sometimes, and like, uh, yes, I do drop into it, especially when things are really hectic, and when I'm have fear come up, and I feel like I'm losing, quote unquote, air quotes here, losing control. Mm-hmm. Then I I definitely like turn yeah. to that. And uh, the reason I ask is because you seem to be somebody who is very attuned to listening, and one of the biggest things that I get from meditating Mm. is, um, you know, they say that prayer is talking and meditation is listening. Mm. And 
I really mm. believe that to be true, even though the majority of things that I hear when I'm meditating mm. is just my mind saying, I'm afraid of this, mm. I'm afraid of that, and obsessing up about something in the future or something in the past. But the mm-hmm. thing that I take out of it is it it highlights to me what I'm anxious about. So then I can say, is mm. there a tool I can apply to mm. this? Mm. Can I just sit in the anxiety? Do I not need to do anything about it? Do I need to make a phone call? Mm-hmm. Do I need to uh, remember that I don't have control here mm-hmm. and let the universe unfold in the way that it's going to unfold? Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen to that. A non-religious amen, but like, yeah, a whole like, I feel that, I agree with that. That yeah. that resonates for me. And what comes up, what comes up for me from that is like an image is worth a thousand words, right? An emotion is worth a thousand thoughts. So instead of processing those thoughts, just sit in the emotion. Don't worry about processing the thoughts. Sit in the emotion, feel it. Don't resist it. Let it flow through you. Don't spend the time with a thousand thoughts. It takes you that much longer, that much more consternation. That's what hits me, mm-hmm. you know, because you're sitting in the meditation. It's like thought, thoughts, and they keep you teaching you, like, just let it go. So what are you sitting in? You're sitting in that space, that emotion. Just let it be. So what are some emotions recently that were uncomfortable that you've just sat in? Oh, well, for me, the big one is um, I have a lot of anger. I get, I'm a passionate fucking motherfucker. Mm-hmm. And I use those ter- I use the F word in them because I think that like uh, is emblematic of like how I'm passionate. Like it me I mean that I'm I'm passionate. I feel and I wanna and I think um, anger is a big one. And um, yeah, I had a tough weekend. Can you my be mom's more- birth- my mom's birthday and. Yeah, it was a tough weekend. I mean, it was beautiful. There was also some beautiful moments, but you know, one reason why I'm this have this hunger is I don't have that connection with uh, part of my family. There is no deep conversations. Were you with your mother for yeah, her yeah, birthday? Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, he was here. She turned seventy eight, and uh, she's taught me. She's given me many gifts. Probably the bi- one of the biggest ones is integrity. I mean, she as a woman with integrity, and her word is a word. And uh, I live by that, and that's a huge gift. And another huge gift I got from her is the lack of intimacy that then created a desire to find it and have it. And that also creates pain for me because I want to have those intimate conversations. But with, frank, her. with her and with other family members that are similar to my mom. And, um, you know, there's not, they, look, there's no, there's no, if there's no desire to have that, you can't keep forcing it. And actually, m- my mom is wonderful and, but we, I took her to therapy with, and I, you know, and I, I have my therapist. I call him the Sage. I really love that guy. He's amazing. And uh, we did a Zoom session. I was able to get my mom on. And through these six, seven sessions, I realized, oh, this room that I want to go into with my mom to have this kind of conversation in this space. A, she's just not interested. It's not because she doesn't love me. She just doesn't want to go there. Sure. She never went there with her family. She's not. In, she. She. I'm asking her to go into a part of the house, in a room in the house that she's not. She doesn't even know is there. She's not interested to know is there, and she doesn't want to go there. And so, part of my anger was like, "Why don't you want to go into this room and have these conversations with me?" And when I realized through this therapy uh, with the therapist was that she's not interested, and that's not because she doesn't love me. She just doesn't want to do it. 
So Topaz, stop forcing that. And then every time we spend time, I, it's, it is a constant test for me. Like, okay, Topaz, pull it back. And then anger comes up. Why aren't we doing it? You know, and then other people's behaviors, I'm, I'm quite judgmental. Cause I, give me, give me some examples. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> no, this one, this one's too close to home and I can't, I can't uh, go there, but, um, I'm, I, I noticed that I, I'm quite, uh, well, you know what I noticed is that I get energy off being judgmental. That's what I'm working oh, on now. Yeah. It you could know, be a high. It could be a Self, high. Self-righteousness can, is yeah, a drug. Oh, and I, I have that. And, um, I don't have that when I'm in the room of the end filming production. You know, the people who step in, they're having a beautiful moment. I'm fueling the space by being there. I don't get that judgment there. I get that judgment in my personal life, right? right? And it's so much and, – and one thing I've been talking to my wife about is like the closer you are to me, the harder and more judgmental I am and more abrasive. So who gets a lot of the brunt now is probably my wife. Thank God she's a strong woman. Like she's and she's a strong woman. And does she speak up for herself? Oh yeah, that's what I mean. She's strong. She doesn't right. take shit, but she's also she does it in a way that diffuses me. Instead of confronting, she's like a jujitsu. You know, she takes my energy and brings it back to me instead of just pushing back because that would be exhausting. So she's a master, which I'm really grateful that I found her in this life. But I get energy, and I'm conscientiously now like I need to find sources of energy from other places, not from judgment, because ultimately that judgment as you get closer. Who am I the hardest on? Me. And I'm probably so hard on myself that I don't even realize it anymore. Right. It's like you're in an abusive relationship and you think it's normal. Topaz, you're beating the shit out of yourself. What the fuck is that about? You know, we mistake it for discipline. Mm. You know, and like, where, where is that? And I think that's that's a space that I'm spending time in now. That and, and anger. And I'm not quite sure of their relationship, but just two things is judgment and anger is... um. Things I'm, I'm currently treading in. Uh, I struggle with with anger every day. Not not necessarily with interpersonal relationships, but with the world. What's going on in the world, and the feeling of helplessness and outrage and injustice. Um, it really challenges my uh, belief in a benevolent force in the universe. Um, mm. It's like how how can how can this be happening? Uh, so, and, uh, yeah. and I don't know what the answer is to that, but so I he, have to sit in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, here, here's one thing that I'm always working on now, which comes from the work of the Anne and the stuff in the book, is we got to stop looking for answers. Create better questions. So, and I do that all the time now. When I find myself, why is this happening or you know, any question was like, ooh, a consternation. I can't get around. It's like, Topaz, stop. You're spending energy in the wrong spot. Don't look for the answer. Create a better question. Do you find relief from coming up with a question? No, because the question is like, um, is, the, is where we throw the stick and our mind will chase the stick no matter where it goes. But we don't realize that. So why is this happening? Is, is well, those, okay, the world, co- so I stop. What if I, what if I change a question to, what can I do now? in my world of relationships that makes it a little bit better where I feel more inspired. The things what, that you have control over yeah, rather than resenting the things yeah. you can't. Or what can I do to make my neighbor feel better today? Boom. Just, just, and so when I find myself stuck on a question, it's usually because I'm asking too big, broad scope of question that I don't necessarily have. We need three parts. That's what I've learned. And I, I think 
one thing I want to share with myself and with everyone is don't look for the answers. Create better questions. Instead of focusing on what, trying to come up with 30 answers to one question, come up with 30 questions. Choose the one that gives you the most energy and empowerment and agency and then answer that. Oh, man, I love that. That is the that is the so you know I'm seeing what's happening in the world these days and I've been in I've been in trauma for about 7 weeks and lineage trauma and I have not been able to see th- well I'm being seeing things through my trauma which is not necessarily clearly but I know it's I'm clear that I'm seeing it through my trauma right. and I'm having very challenging conversations with people and so I'm not asking why is the world fucked up I'm saying okay what can I do and then there's three parts Temporal, what am I doing today? What can I do next week? What can I do next year? Just fill in the blank. Choose anything you want as temporal. Second part is how do I feel about it? Um, where it feels makes me feel inspired. Where I feel challenged. Where I feel comfortable. Where I feel uncomfortable. Where, where I'm leaning to fear. Where I'm feeling vital. Where I'm feeling healthy. Okay. Then the last one is how it makes other people feel. How it supports my family. How it supports causes I think is important. And just like you have three different spots in the question and just – Put different spots. And you write these out. Oh, yeah. You write 30 of them. And then you'll see like the question, like, you know, that's the question I want to answer because that shit gives me energy. It's an empowering agency and it's constructive. And then guess what? The answer is like obvious and simple. And are these questions kind no, of referenced are, in the in the book or is that just no, about that, love? That, that's, that's, I, I mentioned that in the book as an act of like when you're asking yourself questions – and when you're looking for answers, don't don't look for answers. Ask questions. Even in the morning. When you when we wake up in the morning, we usually have, oh, fuck, I have to do that today. We don't realize that before we gave the answer, we actually ask a question. What do I have to do today? Oh, fuck, I have to do that. We don't realize we're asking. Before anything we say, we're actually asking an, a question that prompted that answer. So focus on the question. What can I do today that will inspire me and help my neighborhood or help my family or help my partner or help anybody I meet, then you have a different answer. And that's just a more empowering way for us to – empowering. And to me, that is that is spirituality. Mm. The, why? The, why? Uh, service. Uh-huh. Service is spiritual. It lifts our spirit. Yeah. And, you know, for me, the byproduct of spiritual – of service is me. It mm. is, is I feel something good from it. I don't yeah. do it because uh, – I don't know if I would do it if it didn't feel good. Uh huh. I'm that selfish. Yeah. You know. And, and 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 so you doing something for someone else makes you feel better compared to when you do things just for yourself. Exactly. Well, not that I. If I'm only doing things exclusively for myself, uh-huh. I a feeling begins to come over me that it degrades my life right. because it's. It's imba- not in balance. Yeah. So I've, for me, this, the balance between self-care and service is really I, important. I feel it's like sustainable. If you're doing something that makes you feel good, boom, it's a hit. It's a high. Okay, I got it. But if I do it for someone else, then it's sustainable because the energy goes to them and it comes back to me. Yes. And now this is more sustainable long-term for me because that's why I have you know time frame. How do you feel? That's important. But how does it make others feel so that it's sustainability? You can do it over time because that, doing it for someone else gives you more energy to continue to make yourself feel good, to make other – whatever it is, there's, it's sustainable. I don't know about you, but almost never am I excited when somebody calls me asking for help <laughs> or checking in. There's almost a feeling of 
almost always a feeling of dread um, <laughs> and obligation. And I know from having been in support groups long enough that uh-huh. that is my illness, uh-huh, uh-huh. my history. It's the filter that I filter reality through. Yeah. And I would say 90% of the time after I hang up, I feel peace. I feel vital. and Because you helped. Because I helped. Mm-hmm. But my crystal ball is so broken that it tells me this is going to be the phone call that you're going to f- just feel more drained so afterwards. I want to give you the flip. I'd like to share with you the flip side of that, which is when I get that call, I get amped and I get excited. But it's for selfish reasons because then I get to be the fucking hero. And I question that. Like I am there for my friends. So your ego gets into it. I think it. so. Yeah. I think it's like, am I doing it really because I want to help them or because I get the chance to go help them, which makes me feel good because I'm the rock that they can rely on. And and a lot of my friends consider me like a rock, I think, for some of them. I mean, who knows? My impression is that they do. But I do wonder, is that because I like being the martyr, which is also partly bullshit? You know, what? what is that about? So that, that's the thing I wonder about is that I do like the call and I do like stepping in, but then I question, am I doing it because I really want to help them? Because I like being a hero, you know? And, and ultimately, and I wonder, does it matter? I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a better question. Does it matter? Like, how do you show up for people? That's something that I've been thinking about lately. Right. How do you show up for people? I mean, oddly enough, the last two weeks, um, six people in my circle have died. Wow. Six people. Six people, what the what the hell is that? And this year has been uh, double that. We've had 12 people. And it's like, and it goes from my wife's world. I mean, that's in my circle, you know. And it's like, what is that about? What is that about? And, and, and just the question comes up for me, like, how do I show up for people? And some people, if you ask them, they probably say he hasn't shown up. And other people, they probably say he has shown up. Mm-hmm. So why are the ones that I don't show up? Why do I not show up for some people and I totally show up for others? Was that why is that, and and who shows up for me? That's those are questions I've been at wondering about this past year. So let's talk about the the book. Uh, by the time this uh, episode airs, it will be out. It gets released on January second, and it's called Twelve Questions for for Love. Yeah, uh, tell us about it. At, at uh, the other title to it is a guide to intimate conversations and deeper relationships. It, it really just comes out of. Uh, what has what have I what my what have my team and I learned from the last ten years of twelve hundred conversations, holding the space for twelve hundred conversations about holding cathartic, intimate conversations to deepen your relationships. And this is you know, this is both a blueprint, like this is the mechanics of how why do the questions work and in what order? And how do you create the space? Because it's basically two parts is you want to create the space, the context to have a conversation, and then you need really well-constructed questions to ask in the right order really helps. What's the first question? Here, the first question is, um, let's take a look. It's, uh, what do you remember from the, let me confirm it, because there's so many of this. What are your three favorite memories we share and why do you cherish them? So funny, one of my favorite people in my support group is a, is a guy named Mickey. And um, for the majority of his daughter's life, he was checked out on Oxycontin or mm. fentanyl. Mm. And he will, so he has almost no memories of that. And he will, and now he's been sober 20 years. And mm-hmm. he is present with his daughter, but he will mm-hmm. say to her, give me 
a good memory yeah. from your childhood that yeah. we shared together. Because there were yeah. good memories, but he's forgotten them. Uh-huh. And he'll say, give me another. Yeah. Give me another. I mean, that's... What? I think... I think that's really important in the sense that we're soul, in my opinion, we're souls living in these bodies, having challenges. And the challenges are there so that we can practice acts of love. Because the moment you have acts of love, it's a sense of connection, it's something greater. It's what I call humanity. It's like, it gives us a sense of that greater, there's something more here, like we're connected, we're looking at each, you know? And I think by sharing memories, even though we might not remember, forget, my brother's 15 months younger, he's the greatest gift my par- my parents ever gave me. Because he's a second camera in all these memories of our lives. He's a second data uh, hard drive. So when I talk about him, he goes, oh, I remember it differently. He can give me, give me that memory from a different angle. Or I totally forget it, like Mickey and his daughter. I totally forget a memory. And my brother goes, hey, do you remember that story? What's, what's, what's a, a story or a memory that, that your brother reminded you of? Or one that, that if you were to sit across from somebody you love that you would share with them or they would share with you? In relationship to uh, what? Like, Well, I mean, look, this... So one of the challenges from this past weekend with my mom was that we created a memory and I thought I thought the memory could have been better created, meaning there were some people missing that would, in my opinion, would have created a better memory. And my mom had a great time. But for me, it was like, fucking, we, we could have, if these two people were here, it would have been that much better of a memory. Mm-hmm. And then I got angry. And for her, she had a great time. So that, you know, I think about those things. And then... You know, I just spent a week with my dad, who's 86, and his and his wife, my stepmom, my bonus mom. I call her my bonus mom. That's a great term. Um, in Uruguay, and we had a weekend together where my kids were not there because they didn't come with me. And I'm like, wow, we are as adults. I get to spend this weekend in a beautiful place with my dad, who's 86, and we know that there's not much time there. Mm-hmm. My stepmom, and we're creating these memories. And so last night, you know, three weeks later, I asked him like, what was your favorite memory? And let sh- and tell me that story so that my wife can hear it. Because even though she wasn't there, she could participate in that. And I think that's something about us as humans is that we are kind of, to some degree, network animals. You know, and the stories we tell each other can uplift each other. Hearing someone else's story can be medicine for you. Your story can be medicine for me. Absolutely. And when we create the spaces and the questions to, like, create the, the, the vortex openings or, you know, to create the space for us to exp- go down that path, there can be so much reassurance of the act of living let's uh wrap this up with uh because i have the feeling you uh no i'm good this will this will click with you a game we play sometimes Mm. between myself and a guest is we go back and forth sharing things we fear or things we love um does that sound great doable yeah Yeah, absolutely um i do i do i match what you like if no can be unrelated okay um I mean, you could follow it up with with something, but okay. just un unrelated and kind of the more sublime, you know, the the better. Okay. Um, I love, even though I don't get into the spirit of it, I love how crazy some of my neighbors go with decorations on their front yard for Halloween, uh, Hanukkah, Christmas. Uh, mm-hmm. It just reminds me that. There are people out there having a different experience that is full of love and vitality and wanting to to share to make other people happy. Mm-hmm. Now I go. Yeah. 
And take as long as you need. We can yeah. edit silences out. No, no, it's all good. I think, uh, thank you. Um, I fear, well, what's the first thing that comes up is like the biggest thing I fear right now is um, losing my children and my wife. I'm, uh, I realize I'm quite a control freak and I always want to be next to them to, as though I, as though me being there can protect them. But that's that's a big fear of mine. I can I can see your your eyes are getting misty just uh, yeah thinking about it. Well, yeah, even well, whenever I leave them, I bring it because if I'm not going to be with my kids wherever else I am, I'm going to fucking bring it. So I'm with you now. I'm not with them. I'm going to bring it. I'm going to show up, and that's really beautiful. You know, it's really beautiful that. You know, and uh, I just hope that uh, my that fear never gets tested because I don't know if I'd be able to handle it. I'm afraid um, that my dog Gracie, when assuming she outlives me, <laughs> uh, or I outlive her, um, I'm afraid that the manner. In which she dies will will be unbearable, um, and I, I I don't know what after that, but I'm just afraid it will be unbearable. Do you think she feels the same way? I think she wants a treat. And I think that's as far as she goes into the future. She is as happy to see strange. You saw, yeah. She came out and greeted you. Yeah. She is as happy. To meet a complete stranger as she is when I come home. Really? Which definitely helps keep my ego in check. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. What I, uh, t- what I love is, um, I don't know if you have central heating here, but you know when uh, when the heating goes on mm-hmm. and there's this, mm, I've loved that sound since I was a kid. And every time... Like in Mexico, we don't have that. So when I, yes. <laughs> when I come here, especially now, even though December's not even that cold, but I turn on the heat and the thing, and the machine turns on, and I can hear the, mm, and I sleep better, and I feel, I feel like I'm in in a blanket, and I, I love, love that. that sound. That's a great one. I love canary wood. What's that? It's, it's a smell. It's a type. No, it's a it's a uh, type of wood that has like five different colors in it. And I'm in the process of building some furniture. I was able to get a couple of slabs of it for a really affordable price because mm. it's considered an exotic wood and it doesn't grow in, in the United States. Uh, but it is, most of it is yellow, but it, it also has like cranberry colors going through it. Wow. And, some oranges, and it's just the most. It, it, it's a wood that looks like it was created by an artist, and it's also really dense and kind of waxy. So after you mill it with really sharp knives or a hand plane, or you sand it to a really high grit, it just it it looks like a beautiful bowling ball. Wow! Yeah, it's not like the, not like not like this bookshelf you have here. No. No, that's just a plain. Yeah. I think that's even probably. But it's brown stained. like that, brown and reddish. Oh no, 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 no! It's. I'll show you uh, after. Okay. After we're we're done here. Actually, the end table in the in the living room 
uh, is that, canary I, that wood? I just made is is uh, canary wood. Yeah, we'll we'll walk by that on our way out. The one one of the ones with the glass mm. table. Um, but it when I get a slab of wood that I've never used before, there is an excitement to it, especially when it's in the rough slab form. And I don't know why that is. Maybe because it's the closest to a tree that I get to improvise, mm. really connect deeply to. But um, there are certain woods that I can – it's almost like I took an amphetamine. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds Is it just woods. looking at them or working with them? Both. Build uh-huh. Both, because each one has so its own strength. If you went through a forest, would you get as high? Probably. Well, I love forests themselves, but like looking at a walnut tree, no. no. But if – it had died and fallen over, and we were cutting it open and seeing the slabs. Oh, be like I w- I've never been to a rave, but I imagine mm. that's what it feels like at a, at a rave. Being the first person that gets to see the inside of a tree mm. is, uh, I don't know. For me, it's like mm. seeing a, a child born because it's this special unique thing and you don't know whether the grain is going to be boring or it's going to be exciting and i've built furniture from slabs before where you couldn't see the grain then i mill it and the grain is amazing and that's just it's such a high it's such a high i would never have I wouldn't have that experience. I never imagined having that experience. And if you talk to woodworkers, they will they have it. say the same thing. There are YouTube uh, videos out there just of people milling trees for the first time and then them splashing water on it so you can see the grain and they get hundreds of thousands of views. And you know it's wow. all just w- woodworkers just wow. getting high watching it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow, thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) I love, uh, well, what comes up for me when you said that, chopping down wood, uh, because I think about the time I did that, was uh, I love pushing cows uh, up in the... uh, Like herding them? Yeah, herding cows up. And I did that with cowboys in Colorado up in the... uh, in the mountains around Crested Butte for a few years, and uh, I don't—I think that's the happiest I've ever been. Um, obviously, I'm very happy being a father of my kids, but and being you were on obviously horse, on horseback, yeah, on horseback, working eight, ten-hour days, pushing cows across you know, fourteen thousand feet up in the trees in the mountains. Um, that's probably the has been a peak of that my. Sounds I amazing. love it. I just. And the, I'm just so grateful that I got that experience and that that city boy, me got, being able to find my way there and the cowboy being so kind to take me in and let me work. Uh, and I loved working and I loved the hard work and I love the uh, their projection of or their connect like their version of masculinity. I found mm-hmm. very healthy actually, um, and I learned a lot from that. And them, I loved that time. Any anybody who is listening who has never found something to do that's meditative with their hands, I really encourage them to do it. Or and by meditative, something that that uh, commands your entire attention. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, it, whether it's woodworking, pottery, painting, yeah. stitching, uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
I love when somebody, even though I'm not like a fan of the ukulele, I love when somebody takes uh, a song we've heard a thousand times and they play it on the ukulele and they make it work. Mm. And and it just kind of, that's a mandolin, the little tiny, uh. the little tiny one. Um, which I don't really, really know how to play. I just kind of futz around on it. But um, ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you're it's tuned correctly or, or whatever. It's Does it bring you joy? Right. Um, Is it hearing it or playing it that gives you both, the... Uh-huh. Both, yeah. And if I'm putting like a piece of music together, it as an accent rather than it as the, the main the main course. Yeah. I love like when you find a riff or an instrument that makes something kind of greater than the the sum of its yeah. parts. It just you're like, oh, that's exactly what it needed. Just that little song that little sound. And some people listening to it might not even be aware of it, but you hear it. And so you kind of feel proud as as the person crafting crafting that. Mm. Beautiful. I feel like I need to take a fear one in because I feel like we've been... Let's each do a fear one. Um, What's it say on your arm? Tattoo? Life? Life is the master. I got that in... Uh, I was in India. My, my dad's a master. This guy was... A yogi? Yogi. Like he's got a... It's a heartful meditation. And we're in India at their one of their ashrams, and it's like, and for some reason he let three hundred people in, and they're all sitting on the floor and they're all looking at him, and him and my dad are both in chairs talking because they're friends, and they're talking about the most lame. They're talking about driving to the airport and the luggage and how like, like stupid yeah. shit. And there's right. three hundred people holding their kids, watching, watching, you know, and the master is sitting there and. He he took off his glasses and without his glasses he's blind as a bat, and he um and he would talk with my dad about basic nothingness and I was I was filming it, sitting there watching and then the master would occasionally just look out without his glasses just at the audience of three hundred people just sitting there, just look out and they were all having these experiences I could lo- I looked at their faces and they were getting messages, you know they were. He, that's, I was thinking, oh, my God. What makes him the master is that he gets out of the way. Like he doesn't even see them. He doesn't have glass. He's not registered, but he's letting whatever they pick up, life speak to them through him. They're putting it on him, but it's life speaking. And he got out of the way. And that's why I put life as the master. There's a reminder. As in, as in the life is the master teacher. Right. Life is, life is the master teacher. If you hear... Uh People who are really good at, at improvising or, you know, um, masterful musicians like Quincy Jones, one of mm. the things they'll say is, my job is to get out of the way yeah. and let the universe write this song or come up with this next line for for the improv. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am afraid <laughs> I'm having people over for New Year's and I'm afraid that uh, my decorations uh, look half-assed and that they will feel like I don't really care about having them over. Do you? I do. You do care? I do care. I'm just not a big decoration person. 
but I'm very proud of the the vibe I've created in my house outside of the holiday decorations. Um, it feels very meditative. It oh, feels thanks. like you have certain spots for certain things. Yeah, that's what I I, f- I feel. I so saw the hammock out there and the chair. It seems like you have your thing to do in each spot. It has this unique purpose. Thanks. I do. I do feel feel that way. But you know, we can get used to where we are every day and kind of forget what's well, special about it. Okay, that's what I love. I love coming in. Like I came in. I quickly took a book while you're checking your computer. I love coming in and and reading the space to see what happens in the space. Mm. So the chair, you have one chair facing out the window. I was right. like, okay, I see you there in the afternoon when the sun's coming in. Yeah. What are you doing there? And then there's the hammock and there's the book and the and what is that? You know, everything is like a, a remnant of an identity. What happens? What's an action that happens? I love that. I love reading the space and imagining what happens. Yeah. You know, there's one thing going to archaeological digs, Pompeii or something and seeing that, but even just someone's home is coming in and it's like, ooh, this is what this person does. This is how they live. This is this is suggests the spaces they inhabit, both emotionally and physically. It's really I love that. Yeah. What a great one. Let's do one more each, whether okay. you want to do a fear or a, a yeah. love. Uh I love, <laughs> I love seeing a really big person on a scooter. It's just kind of the, <laughs> I don't know, the lack of ego, you know, because uh, so often you see people on these totally tricked out Harley Davidsons or choppers with the gigantic handlebars and you feel like, I don't know, there seems to be a lot of ego involved. But like when you see somebody who's built like a linebacker, on a tiny little scooter, oh, I just love kind of the lack of self-consciousness and just the lack of fear of somebody going, mm. look at that idiot. Mm. Mm. You feel the same way when you see like a petite small woman on a Harley? I Yeah. It's a different feeling. It's yeah. a love. Uh-huh. It's a love. Um, it's like a pride or what? Yeah. Uh, just that she's she's following something that she wants and kind of doesn't care that a large part of society is like, that motorcycle's not meant for you. Right, 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 right. And the fact, I because I've had a motorcycle before and it wasn't a big motorcycle, but they're fucking hard sometimes to stand up, to get started on, you know, if they start tipping yeah, yeah, over in yeah. the middle of traffic, if your feet don't yeah. touch flat on the ground, no. it's a it's a balancing act and it yeah. can, can go sideways. Yeah. I have a lot of fear in my life. It's usually about survival. Um my lineage comes from the uh, Jews escaping the Holocaust. Um my family is nine of 169 that survived of 7,300 Macedonian Jews. So 7,300 were liquidated in Treblinka, 169 escaped. Nine of them was my family. He posed as Muslims in Albania for a year and a half, two years. Wow. And um, I have that fear. It's in my bones. It's in, it's in my lineage. Um, I'm always preparing a plan B and C. 
And um, I'm also like someone who loves humanity and how we connect. Is I don't necessarily like humans. I fucking love humanity. When we connect with each other and we really you know, we elevate and we're like in that space together of compassion and understanding and connection. I get high off of that. Maybe I don't like humans because we don't spend too much time in that space. And I get fucking angry that we don't. And war is like the war and aggression is a complete form, ultimate form of disconnection and hate. And I, uh, and, uh, I have a lot of fear um, directly for myself. And um, there was footage. Um, I don't remember if you saw that on YouTube, but there was footage in Dagestan of like Russia, Dagestan, Russia, of a plane that landed from Tel Aviv. And there were like three, I don't know how many young men, but there were young men running rampant through the airport looking for a Jew. I did see that. That's my nightmare. I've had those nightmares literally in my sleep as a kid because my dad told me as a Holocaust survivor, he said, son, it's going to happen in your lifetime again. I mean, it hadn't happened in my lifetime, but it will happen again in your lifetime. You must own land in Australia, which I have permanent residence in New Zealand, ironically. Mm -hmm. I, I prepped for that. And uh, you must have a job you can do anywhere. And uh, my business is e-commerce, and we're online. And so I find it interesting that at like 47, I've listened to him without really being, because I never thought it, he, I, I always thought like, that's not going to happen again. And I don't know if it's going to happen again, but it feels like it could. And that's a big fear of mine. And not taking any way away from the immense pain that other populations, you know, Palestinians are feeling like that shit fucking rips me apart. And that really hurts. And, uh, and as someone who's created the space for 10 years to have difficult conversations, I've been trying to find my way through that fear and trauma. And I'm still trying to find my way through it. And I, I and that's why I don't say much about it. This is probably the most I've said in two months. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I'm going to end with with a love that is so fucking trivial, but I love a good welcome mat. A welcome mat? A, something that that says something that's kind of silly and uh, just kind of ridiculous. And just uh, just as you go into this person's house, there's just a vibe that they don't take themselves too seriously and they're happy so, like, that you showed up. What's a great up. one? What's a great one that you love? Um. God, I can't think of one in particular, um, but it might even be a, a, a kind of a cheesy one that just says like home sweet home. Like they're unafraid that it's kind of cliche uh, and a little bit saccharine, but they're, that they're not afraid to, to what have that. What does yours say? Does yours, do you have? Mine is, it doesn't say, not only does it not say anything but it started falling apart four years ago. And I think that tells people coming through the door, uh, be prepared. He is not that <laughs> self-aware. I think this means that your audience, your listeners, should get you a different mat. They should oh, they should hook you up as a mat for Christmas. I like or that. Or for the new year. Let's, let's put that out there. <laughs> let's put that out there. And I will wait uh, on, on buying one and see if uh, – 
Somebody so shows yeah, up. Somebody, something shows up. Uh, Topaz, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, your book is called 12 Questions for Love. It comes out January 2nd. Uh, your YouTube uh, channel is called The Skin Deep, and yeah. the series that we were talking about in particular is called uh, The And, and there's yeah. a, a ton of really deep, great videos. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Topaz. We're going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is from the Misophonia survey, and this is filled out. For those of you that don't know, Misophonia is a sound sensitivity. It's a big fancy word for it. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Lost in London. And what noises trigger you? Sniffing, coughing, throat clearing, and snoring. Um, is your relationship with the person making the noise affected by their noises? Yes. I find myself feeling angry, disgusted, and on edge with the person making the noise. And I feel bad for being so irrational. It makes me want to yell at that person or run away. Are you comfortable telling people about your sound sensitivity? No. I feel guilty and embarrassed. If someone is coughing or sniffing because, they, because they're ill, it feels cruel to say I have a problem with it. What have the reactions been when you've told people, I can't help it? Do you have other sensory, sens sensory sensitivities? Yes, I have sensitivity to light, particularly in periods of high anxiety. Um, I do not recommend that you have a surprise party for yourself. And I like how you are going to know that it's a surprise party, but you're somehow going to be surprised. Have you struggled with food issues? No. And I mention it every time I read uh, the misophonia survey, but this uh, was designed by someone with misophonia. So that is, if you're scratching your head saying, why, what does food have to do with this? What is, you know, this other thing? Uh, it's because those are uh, questions that, that they had. And I was just kind of taking their lead. Uh, how long have you had misophonia? Since my early teens. How many times a day do you get triggered? It depends. When my boyfriend has a cold, it could be several times a day. Do you feel guilty about your triggers or the way you respond to them? Massively. I feel like I'm being childish and unfair. Have you been diagnosed with a mental or physical health disorder slash issue? If so, do you believe it's connected to your misophonia? Yes. I have CPTSD from my dysfunctional upbringing with my mother. We lost our home in my early teens, and we spent the next five years sofa surfing, staying with friends from her 12-step programs or staying in halfway houses. Often, we shared a bed, and I was with her bodily noises all the time. She would never go to the doctor when she was ill. In parentheses, I live in the UK. It's free, so there's no excuse. 
So it just got worse. One time she coughed so much she was sick in our bed and I still imagine it's in my 15 it's in my hair 15 years later. When people cough or snort or snore I feel like I'm back sharing a smelly sofa bed with my mother in yet another stranger's home. Do you have a history of trauma or emotionally disinterested slash unavailable parents? Yes, my mother was emotionally abusive and is now my belief that she had undiagnosed mental health problems as she behaved in a very erratic, highly sensitive way. She has extreme money issues resulting in homelessness on more than one occasion and couldn't handle me as her only child despite being a perfect straight A student who tried very hard to care for her. I never knew which mom I would have on a given day. If I was sick, She would say I was punishing her. She blamed me for being alone. She'd tell me I was the reason she hadn't had sex in years, even when I was a small child, and that I, like everyone else, didn't want her to be happy. If I cried, she'd say I was trying to make people think she was a bad mother. If something didn't go her way, she'd storm out or scream. She'd regularly tell me she couldn't cope. And when I wasn't perfect, she'd tell me she wouldn't be able to go on. But then the next day, she'd be loving and supportive. It was very confusing and painful. And I blamed myself. Wow, she does sound like a very, very sick person. Uh, Did you ever experience trauma to the ear? No. Have you tried any kind of therapy, medication, or tools for your misophonia? Not specifically for misophonia. Uh, Thank you for filling that out. And I would imagine, yeah, the the pairing of those noises with the chaos and the gaslighting, if that's the right word, by your mom, fuck. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by, I can't tell if that's Marion or Marlon. Uh, she writes, assuming he or she, oh no, it's a it's a female, so it's probably Marion. Assuming your mother is still living, do you plan to see her again before she dies? Uh, she is still living, and uh, I do not. I'm estranged from an elderly parent who's in the hospital and I'm struggling with whether to visit him. I have nothing to say to him, but have guilt around how lonely he is and hate more than most things the idea of an old person feeling too alone while going through a hard time. I worry that he'll worry that he'll think I want a relationship with him again if I visit him, and just seeing him will worsen my mental health. I'd like to see him before he dies, but he probably won't die this time in the hospital. I can I can definitely relate. My mother is not in the hospital, but I cut contact with her. Uh, I guess it would have been 12 years ago, roughly. Um, and I tried uh, reconnecting through letters, and she did not respect boundaries, and that's why I don't have contact with her today. And it was really negatively affecting my mental health. And I had to do what I had been going to one of my support groups for, which is to learn to practice self-care. And... Um, One of the epiphanies I had was, 
it's important to have compassion for other people, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. And I was not having compassion for myself because I would be depressed for weeks just after being on the phone with her for five minutes. And there's a part of my brain that still tells me, oh, you're weak, you're selfish, you're a bad son. The average person would be able to handle it, but you're just too selfish. <clears throat> Excuse me, in most days I know that that's not a voice that is healthy for me to listen to and give weight to, but um, I can be sad and feel for her while also not having contact with her. We can love and have compassion for people from a distance, and that is the situation with her. And I encourage you, whatever decision you make, to take care of your mental health. And, uh, excuse me. It sounds like not having contact with him would be the best choice for your mental health, but um, it's another reason why I find support groups so helpful and therapy is because I can run it by them. Because left to my own thinking, I'll think myself into circles and then just have it take a nap and wake up just as confused. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Wildflower. And they write, I love when everyone has gone to bed and I have the freedom to do things without getting yelled at. Where do you live? Who is yelling at you? I suppose another question would be also, what are you doing? Uh, when you get, I love when you get to your destination and turn off the car just as the song ends. I must have swallowed something. <coughs> Excuse me. I like how I'm doing that right after the misophonia about the person who can't stand the coughing. Although I imagine they're probably talking about the phlegmy coughing because I don't mind a dry cough unless it's constant, but the wet cough, oh, oh, or somebody talking at length when they need to clear their throat and they're not clearing their throat. Ugh. But that's a good one. The timing. That's when I feel like, oh my God, there, there is a God. Because clearly, that timing, the song and the engine going off at the same time, that's otherworldly. That can only be explained by a deity. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Moon Lover. And uh, she is in her 30s. She identifies as bisexual. She says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, she writes, yes, and I never reported it. I was sexually abused by a cousin from as young as I can remember to 15 years old when they moved out of the country. He was only one year older than me, so the few people I shared it with dismissed it as a, quote, normal, unquote, childhood behavior. It was not normal, and it happened often. I would try to say no pretend I had a boyfriend at school, explain that we could get caught, etc., but he didn't care. I'm also 95% sure my uncle, his dad, abused me too because every time I see him, I feel weak, physically ill, and can't think straight. I just can't remember anything. It also makes sense because if he abused my cousin as well, my cousin would just be continuing the cycle of abuse. I finally, finally is in caps, completely cut off contact with them when I was 28. I'm now 31. I was also raped by a co-worker on the second day of my new job. My first, quote, 
grown-up, unquote, career. He said that his two dogs had passed away from Parvo when he was having a get-together with co-workers at his house that night because he didn't want to be alone. Being naive, I went. When I got there, I was the only person, and no one ever showed up. Oh, that that is... That just makes my stomach sink. There was a gun on the kitchen counter, and I felt really afraid. He began making sexual advances, and at first I didn't do anything because I was in shock. Then he pushed me down on the bed and raped me, saying that, quote, I would have his children, unquote. I'm 5'11", but he was much larger than me, and for the first time in my life, I felt completely overpowered. At this time, I was able to repeatedly say no, but he didn't stop until he finished inside me without a condom. At work the next day, he acted completely normal and was, quote, confused, unquote, why I wouldn't talk to him. I should have reported it, but I never did. I still regret not reporting to this day because I know he's likely done this to other women. Uh... She uh, says that she's never been physically abused or emotionally abused. And by the way, I'm so sorry that you uh, experienced both of those things. And, you know, the first one, opening up to other people about it and them just minimizing it. Um, Yeah, that's really shitty. Any positive experiences with abusers? I pretty much hated being around my family and would beg my mom to not make me stay the night at their house or even go, go, or even go over, even though I never expressed why. My parents didn't seem to care or take it as a red flag. Darkest thoughts. I have bipolar 2 on top of the CPTC. PTSD, which I was diagnosed with last year at age 30. I have suicidal thoughts almost daily. I fantasize about how to do it and the relief I would feel. Sometimes I just lay in bed and think about it all day long. So much so, I can't even have a conversation with my partner. I feel that I will never be, quote, content, unquote, and that I will live with depression the rest of my life, and I am tired. Darkest secrets. I have serious intimacy issues and cannot even kiss people I have sex with. I can only engage in sexual acts if they have aspects of violence or aggression. I hate, and hate is in caps, that I am this way but don't know how to engage in sex otherwise. This has led me to having sex with some pretty not great people. I do not have sex with my partner. In parentheses, we are married, but he is closeted gay, even to me. I have known this for nine and a half out of the ten years we've been together. End of parentheses. And therefore, I seek sex on apps. I have periods of hypersexuality and periods when I cannot even think about sex. And that is really common for people who've experienced sexual trauma, is going between what the, they call sexual anorexia and uh, and promiscuity. Um, I'm just wondering as I read this, how much processing of this done that you've done either in support groups or with the therapist regardless of the modality um 
I don't know if you've done talk therapy and you've hit a wall with that, but there are nonverbal modalities that can be really helpful with trauma that's trapped in the body. Somatic experiencing is one that really helped me. EMDR is another one that really helped me. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, Having sex with multiple people at once, but being taken over, rape, play, being held down, choked, beaten, etc. I won't expand further for your sake. Uh, Writing that makes me feel disgusting. The idea of consensual loving sex where you attempt to make a connection with your partner makes me sick. I hate that I am this way and wonder I have ever gotten this far when other people have been through so much worse than me. I have to, to, to tell you, first of all, my heart breaks for you and the things that you are are sharing are so textbook for someone who has experienced sexual trauma. Which is why I'm I'm wondering if you've been to a, a therapist yet, especially one who is uh, has a lot of experience uh, in this. And and obviously, I'm not a therapist, uh, but I've talked to many therapists, both about my own issues and therapists that I've interviewed on the podcast, books I've read friends in my support groups. Um, So um, I just have this image of, of you as a wounded animal in the corner, you know, licking its wound and not wanting to be touched, which is totally understandable. That is, that is what we do when we're, when we're wounded and especially if there's shame or confusion about it, you know, and you say that you minimize it and you tell yourself you're making too big of a deal of it. And one of the things that sexual trauma survivors share the most, and this was the case with me as well, is the fear of not being believed or being told that you're making too big of a deal of it. And so, We go into that corner and we lick our wound and we isolate and we get sicker and sicker. And I just really hope that you can get to a point where you can find support to help help you heal. Because I really do think it is doable. I really do. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my partner that I know he's gay and that I support him and that he doesn't have to sneak around or keep it from even me. I feel very sad that after 10 years, he can't share it with me and know that he must feel very alone. I worry daily about his mental health as well. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for a, quote, normal, unquote, life. One where I haven't been abused, don't have to be on meds, don't have episodes of psychosis, etc. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared my childhood abuse and adult rape with my partner, and he's been very supportive. I've even tried to share with other people, but they immediately become very uncomfortable, so I stopped attempting that a long time ago. I even told my should have read this part first. I even told my therapist about being raped by my co-worker. Instead of talking to me about it, she told me that she was once sexually harassed, not raped, harassed by a co-worker, and it happens all too often, and she moved on. So I won't be doing that again. That is a horrible therapist. That is a jaw-droppingly horrible therapist. And I encourage you 
to find a good therapist because a good therapist can feel you and see you and empathize with you and it can be incredibly, incredibly healing. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel pretty much the same. Just hoping someone out there can relate. Oh my God, so many people can relate to what you've written. And there's a support group that I think uh, you could you could benefit from um, that's centered around intimacy uh, disorders. And I don't want to, it, it, um, it shies away from uh, public media. So I don't name it on the podcast itself. But if people email me uh, about it, and especially for people who alternate between hypersexuality and periods of withdrawing, um, or just one or the other, I, I, many people find it to be extremely helpful because that is part of my story as well, and it's helped me. But thank you, thank you for sharing that. And then finally, this is this is from the uh, the love survey, and this is the aforementioned loves uh, about playing games. <laughs> the name of the person sharing this is. The wench thinks you should stop playing with the drinks. I have no idea what that means. Uh, share things you love. Board games are a big hobby for me, so I have a lot of loves attached to them. I love getting a new game, especially one I've backed on Kickstarter because it usually means I've been waiting for it for at least a year. I love Kickstarter exclusives, like high-quality game components and extra play modes. I love games with metal coins, grabbing a handful and feeling their weight, the metal coins feeling more real than cardboard or plastic ones. I love when they make collector's editions and knowing that my collector's copy is one of only a few copies like it. I love opening a new game, taking the shrink wrap off of a pristine box, lifting the lid and smelling the fresh paper, plastic and cardboard. I love unwrapping the pieces, popping the cardboard pieces out of the punch-out sheets, combing through the other components. I love reading through the component list and the instructions, counting them out to make sure all of the pieces are there, familiarizing myself with every last piece in the box. I love reading through the instructions for how to play, trying out the solo mode if there is one, playing against myself if there isn't, making sure I fully understand the game. I love bringing the game to a game night to try with others for the first time. I love when other people get just as into the game as I've usually been since I got it. I love planning out a strategy for gaining points or pulling ahead and having it come to fruition. I also love more chaotic games where you just have to take down your friends and be the last one standing. I love when a game has box inserts with spots for all the pieces and they all go neatly into the box when you're done. I love when a full game box has heft and knowing that there's a whole world in there I can get lost in for an hour or two. I love games. <laughs> that is one of my favorite sets of loves that I've ever read. I, I, I love when people get into the details of something. That, that, that was so awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you, everybody, 
who uh, who filled out surveys. Thanks to Topaz. And uh, if you're out there and you're and you're feeling stuck, uh, just never forget that you are not alone. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.